welcome to 13, the bi-weekly podcast where one Colgate University community member answers 13 questions about their work. My name is Daniel DeVries, and today I'm chatting with Assistant Professor of Biology, Ana Jimenez. Professor Jimenez specializes in animal physiology, environmental physiology, and organismal biology. She seeks to understand the functional linkages between whole animal metabolic rate and the underlying mechanisms that influence its magnitude and direction. And we'll get into that later. Um, Professor Jimenez earned her bachelor's degree from the University of West Florida and her PhD from the University of North Carolina, Wilmington. Before teaching at Colgate, Professor Jimenez taught at Ohio State and Marymount University. And throughout her career, she's produced more than 54 publications, primarily related to the life of dogs and songbirds. Professor Jimenez, welcome to 13. Thanks for having me. All right. So you earned your bachelor's and PhD in marine biology. Tell me a little bit about your path from studying aquatic creatures to primarily focusing on avian and canine subjects. Sure. Yeah, that's, uh, I guess that's not very typical. Um, I um, I am a lover of the ocean and all things marine. Um, I was I was very much from a very young age. My my grandfather was actually uh, the the know all of everything that was marine. We lived in uh, Venezuela and we had a um, a beach house, and so every morning he would take us little cousins for walks on the beach, and he would show us all the marine critters. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so I, I was in love with the ocean. I was in love with the ocean so much so that I spent four years of an undergraduate and six years of a PhD um, <laughs> studying the ocean. And it's still my my primary love, I think. Um, when I graduated from my PhD, um, I couldn't find a job. In marine hmm. biology, um, and and so um, Professor uh, Joe Williams from the Ohio State University advertised for an NSF-funded postdoc um, and had a very long list of requirements of what he wanted this postdoctoral fellow to do, and the main requirement was to know birds. Um, but his underlying question was, how does whole animal metabolic rate link to cell function? And that's what I was interested in and what I had spent my PhD doing. And so I wrote him this long email saying, listen, I know nothing about birds. I know nothing about the methods that you want me to know, but but our research interests line up. Um, Will you take a chance on me? And he did. He said, come on up. Um, And I went to Ohio State and I interviewed and I got the job and I chased birds for three years. And I had had a very steep learning curve, but I learned stuff. Um, yeah. And I also, I have to acknowledge, um, I was in a very supportive lab. My lab mates were very loving and very caring about my learning of birds, <laughs> mostly because they're birders and birders really love their birds. Um, and, and so I, I, I did that for three years and I learned to really love birds. Um, and then I did another postdoc, Aloyola Marymount. Um, and that was back, and, and that was in conjunction with Stanford University. And so I, I spent some time in Hopkins Marine Station, which is like my dream come true. And and turned out that, you know, I still loved the birds. 
<laughs> then after I went back to marine biology, I would I would be sitting in the intertidal and and loving the fact that I could smell the ocean, but I was staring at the sky. Hmm. Um, and, and so uh, my love changed, and that wasn't what I expected at all. Um, and then I came to to Colgate and. Um, dogs. I, I've grown up with dogs. I I think pretty much everyone who knows me on campus knows that I, I very much love my dog, Emma. Um, and, and so I had a moment while I was living in LA where she started showing that she was graying in her snout. And I was like, huh, that probably means that she's aging and I should probably know a thing or two about this. I'm a physiologist after all. I should know things about processes. Um, and I didn't. I didn't know anything about aging. And I didn't know anything about the whatever physiological process she may be going through. Hmm. Um, and so when I got here and I was landlocked and I was still doing my bird work, but in the back of my head, I was still wondering, well, I still need to know what my dog is going through. And, huh. and so that developed into the dog work that we're doing right now in my lab. So I want to set up a couple of the the upcoming questions here with kind of the underlying knowledge about metabolic rate. So uh, detached from the research now, but can you explain a little bit about what it means to study an animal's whole metabolic rate and the mechanisms that influence magnitude and direction for someone like me who doesn't really understand how all that works? Sure. Yeah, of course. So all animals need energy, right? Like, you know, when, when you've missed a meal, you're hungry, you start getting slow. Angry. Right? Yeah. You get, well, yes, <laughs> I get angry. I tell my students from 1130 to one, don't show up. <laughs> um, and, and so metabolic rate is essentially the processing of energy, right? An organism processing of energy. The overall um, definition is the summation of all the biochemical reactions that are happening within an organism uh, at any point in time, right? And, and so at the whole organism, that's what we refer to. It's it's all of these different biochemical pathways. And if you put it on a on one slide, the the writing of all these mechanisms and processes is so small that that not even zooming in can you tell what the different processes are, right? It's just a vast amount of things that your whole body is doing to maintain your energy, to maintain. So usually we think about ATP as the energy currency of the cell. And so it's a balance between ATP supply, how much ATP your cells are making, and ATP demand, what your underlying physiological processes, your breathing, your um, contracting of muscles, your heart beating, your lungs functioning, that is sucking up all the ATP. So that's what I mean with whole animal metabolic rate. The underlying mechanisms are how cells make this ATP. And not every organ in someone's body makes ATP at the same rate. Um, and, and so that's what we care about. That's what that gets at. Does that answer the question? I think it does. Okay. Um, you know, and, and that connects with one of your research topics, I think that's received considerable attention. And that's the biology behind your question about whether or why small dogs tend to outlive their larger counterparts. So can you tell us, I guess, um, just why does a Chihuahua live longer than a Great Dane in general? Well, that's the million dollar question, I think. 
Um, uh, we have ideas, right? Aging, first of all, aging is a very complicated process. It can be dictated through genes, it can be dictated through physiological processes. And then not only is it a, a complicated process, but what we know of aging has told us that different organisms age through different means, right? And so I may age differently than another mammal. Sure. Um, and, and dogs, the thing about dogs is that they're the same species right? They're all the same species and they have this really weird lifespan relationship where the smaller ones live significantly longer lives than the larger ones, which is in opposing to every other mammal correlation that we know of. Um, and, and so why? Um, th there's a lot of work out there that's been trying to figure this out. Um, the, the thing of this field is that it's very new. Um, the sort of whole organism relationships that we just talked about, right? The, the aging of a chihuahua to be slower than a Great Dane, that those data started coming out only 20 years ago. Hmm. And so we just, we just hadn't focused on dogs as an aging model just yet. And so the dog field has sort of taken off and is taking off. What we have found in our lab is that dogs are weird. And if you're any one of my students in physiology classes, you know, you know, I like the weirdos. The weirdos are like the points that lay outside of a, a straight line. Those are the ones that are interesting physiologically. And so just because I was wondering about Emma's aging, I sort of stumbled on a weirdo. And so why are they weird? So at the cell level, when we're looking at things like oxygen consumption of cells, they sort of age similarly to everything else. Right? When you're um, young, you have a really good efficiency for using ATP as you're producing it. When you're old, that efficiency increases. So you have to breathe more to be able to do the things that you would normally do. We know that, that's not new. It's in the other pathways. And so there's two main, path there's much, many more pathways, but the two that we're concerned with in my lab, it's the oxygen consumption, and then the anaerobic pathway, the pathway that does not need oxygen. And so that one's the one that's interesting for us right now. Because what we found is that in large breed dogs, in the Great Danes, um, that pathway is higher than their smaller counterparts. An increase in aerobic glycolysis, the problem with that, especially when dogs are puppies, is that um, that phenotype is cancerous or it could be cancerous. It's called the Warburg effect. And so for a group of cells to become a tumor or to become, a, to undergo tumor genesis, you need to switch your cellular energy source to anaerobic means. And so what does that mean? That means that from the time that dogs, according to our data, from the time that dogs are puppies to the times that they're seniors, they have a predominant glycolytic phenotype that puts them at a higher risk of developing cancer. Hmm. And we know that cancer rates in dogs are five times higher than any other disease. Um, and, and so this could be an explanation as to why. Interesting. Can you talk a little bit about the process of this research? So what do you do in the lab 
to I guess study to study these different things. Primarily um, chemistry, or how does it how is it done? It's uh, I'm not you know it's biochemistry I think is where it falls. And so we have two different uh, ways of doing these things. Um, first of all, we have um, veterinarians that work very closely with us, um, and so the Waterville Veterinary Clinic works very closely with us, and um, Village Vet in Wompsville works really closely with us. And then we have um, a wonderful, wonderful vet in Michigan who also works really closely with us. And so we can collect two different types of tissues to sort of address some of these questions. Um, we can collect blood from dogs and that's sort of at routine care um, visits. Um, their technicians collect blood for us and store it for us. Um, or we can collect samples like medically discarded tissue when, um, when there's routine tail docks or dew claw removal or things that are sort of breed specific. And so we can take that skin and we can bring it into the lab. We can um, put the skin through um, an enzyme digestion and isolate what's called primary fibroblast cells. And so those cells, they're actually the most common cell type in anyone's bodies, but they get like no rep whatsoever, <laughs> but they're responsible for all of your connective tissue. And we are mostly connective tissue. Um, and so those are the cells that we isolate from dogs. And so the, the reason why we use tissue culture, this is called tissue culture, um, is because we're isolating the cells, not just the mitochondria, of the cells, which is the ATP producing site, but we're also taking the nucleus. And so the, the relationship between the nucleus and the mitochondria and to maintain that relationship for these types of assays is really important. Um, and so that's sort of what the lab work looks like. It, it's very time consuming. It is very expensive. Um, and you have to be very careful because Anything that you do can bring something like bacteria or fungi into these tissue culture cells. And if that happens, we've lost that sample. And so it's only the most anal of students that end up working on that kind of a project. So, you know, you had mentioned that part of the, you know, the inter interesting part of this research is that, you know, dogs are all the same species. Um, but at the same time, you know, you have these different breeds and um, different sizes and stuff. So I'm curious, is it um, breed specific? Have you found outliers among breeds or is it simply size? So, you mm. know, like does a smaller version of a larger breed matter is what I'm kind of thinking. And so there is a few breeds that do that, right? Okay. And so the poodles do that. You have the uh, toy miniature and standard poodles, the toy being the smallest and the standard being the largest. Um, you have the schnauzers that do that. You have the Doberman slash pinchers that do that. Um, when you look at the literature for people who came before us, they did not find lifespan differences across breeds like that. Mm. And at the cell level, we're also not finding that. We find no cellular level differences across breeds that do the small, medium, and large. Does that answer your question? Yeah, so does that mean a large poodle has a similar life expectancy to a toy poodle? That's right. Oh, wow. Okay. Not, it's, not, it's at least not significantly different. Huh. And so what that says is that there is an underlying genetic component that's very important. And as a dog owner, it makes me wonder, do people come to you with dog advice now? Like, are you just like 
the 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 source of dog information at Colgate? Do people just come up to you with random questions about a dog they're thinking about adopting? They do. I get uh, I get lots of random emails of this person told me about you, um, and <laughs> this is the dog that I'm thinking about. Should I adopt it or not? <laughs> and the the bad part of this is that there's me, the researcher. Who, who knows that there's lifespan disparities in dogs. And then there's me, the dog lover, who if I get an email from someone saying, should I get a dog? The answer is yes, of course. <laughs> what, has been, have you, um, what has been the public reaction to your work? I mean, have you received, uh, have people reached out to, to talk to you more about this? I mean, people generally that are um, dog lovers are generally passionate about dogs, right? So I guess, has there been any um, negative feedback, positive feedback? I'm curious what you've heard. Um, from the public is generally sort of a, uh, thanks for taking this on um, and for trying to, to help dogs. From veterinarians, it's also a similar um, outcome. From uh, my peers and my colleagues, there's general excitement that there's more research about dogs, but there's also been some critical, you should probably think about this. So for example, um, within our field, if there's an increase in glycolysis, it could mean two things. And so we're further exploring what those two pathways would look like um, to get at more solid answers um, for, for that part of the work. Hmm. Moving on from dogs, um, you <laughs> a little bit about your, you study songbirds. Um, and some of your research focuses on how these birds may deal with climate change. So what are you specifically looking at and what have you found? We are specifically looking at whether uh, birds that are local to this area, and so this area is sort of special because it, it's a temperate area, it has all seasons, right? Um, and so if you were to build a bird that is... Um, uh, that is resilient to temperature changes. It would be a bird that inhabits this habitat, right? And so our year-long birds um, are what's interesting to us. And so we, we've done work on black-capped chickadees and we've done work on rock pigeons. And the comparison of that is that they're two very different sizes. They're larger end of the pigeon and the, the super small um, black-capped chickadee. In fact, Black-capped chickadees are the smallest bird that can, that can live in such cold conditions that we know of. Um, and, so, and so we've been collecting birds, those two species specifically, across um, every season, and we've been subjecting them to temperature changes. And so some of these birds are sort of at control conditions. They don't see any temperature changes. Um, some birds are acutely um, seeing temperature increases, and they're only predicted temperature increases for our area. So climate change predicted increases is only about six degrees or so. And so it's not a massive challenge. Mm -hmm. um, and then some birds see chronic changes, and so changes that would mimic a heat wave around mm -hmm. here. Um, and what we do is we take the uh, we take uh, different tissues from the birds, and so we take um, their brains and their muscles and sometimes their liver and their intestines. And we look at a process that's called oxidative stress. And so oxidative stress is a byproduct of metabolism. It's sort of um, if metabolism, if, if the, the toxic byproducts of metabolism called reactive oxygen species can't be dealt with with the, the antioxidants that are present, 
um, damage occurs. And if you have damage occurring, that's really bad for the organism. Um, and so, so we measure the process of oxidative stress by measuring a couple of enzymes, and then we measure the total accumulation of different damages. And what we found repeatedly is that birds that live around here are not faced by the temperature increases that we're throwing at them, at least, mm. which some yeah. argue are mild. Okay. Um, but we do see changes in oxidative stress across seasons. And so that can be a little worrisome because we know that with climate change, one of the things that's changing is seasons, right? And so we worry about something called environmental mismatch, where migratory birds come to a region that hasn't quite thawed or that's thawed too much, and then they can't do the things that they need to do um, as they're built. So I guess, what is the... um level of change are we talking about here? So you have birds subjected to temperature changes that changes their metabolic activity. What does that, I guess, um, how does that create a negative impact? Like what is the the negative outcome from, uh, like when you said with the, the changes in seasons, um, how does that impact the bird's life? Sure. Um, an accumulation of any, any of these types of damage and so that it could be damage to DNA. And, and so then you worry about you know, um, the, the genetic machinery not doing what it's supposed to be doing. Um, it can be damaged to proteins. It can be damaged to lipids. And so it's essentially every macromolecule can be damaged by this type of um, uh, process. Um, if, if things like too much lipid damage accrues, then cells can't function properly. If cells can function properly, there's an intracellular pathway that that is um, its own cellular destruction. It's called apoptosis. If there's too much apoptosis, then cells go into sort of shock. And, and so it could be detrimental for the overall functioning, underlying functioning of these birds if they accrue, accrue too much of this damage. Why um, choose, I, I was curious about the choice of songbirds uh, as opposed to different types of birds. Um, you know, why not a crow? Like what's the, uh, how do you make that that decision as like, this is the thing that we're going to look at? Crows are too smart. Ah. <laughs> no, the overall uh, decision on that is that uh, songbirds are very abundant to this area. Um, and in fact, our Colgate Hill is one of the migratory hotspots in for spring migration of hot, of um, songbirds, and and so we wanted to say something that was relevant, not not just well to our area. Gotcha. Um, and are there other animals that? Can I, I guess I wonder, are there other animals or maybe it is birds that are, are like a canary in the coal mine with respect to the impacts of climate change? Um, or is it too, or, you know, is the subject too broad? Too many animals, you can't make one conclusion or at least you can't um, rely on one species over another. Is this primarily um, just related to birds and, and does it relate to other birds that you aren't studying as well? I mean, is it something that does transfer to different species of birds? Um, I think that anyone who studies a particular animal will tell you that their animal is the most important when it comes to climate change. <laughs> um, there are three choices that we know of that animals have when, when they're faced with the types of predictions that climate change are telling us are going to happen. 
right? You can um, adapt. Adaptation takes a really long time. Um, and we don't know whether uh, at the rate that things are changing, whether animal populations will be able to adapt. Um, animals can move, their distribution patterns can change, or there's local extinctions and so they die. We know that most bird populations have altered their distribution patterns already. And so, so when you're talking about a canary in a coal mine, if, if they've moved their, um, their distribution patterns already, that's a signal to us who study climate change that, uh-oh, they're moving because they can't take what they were seeing in, in their previous habitat. And so that's concerning to us. Now, the marine biologist in me, right, is also really worried about anything that's coastal, right? I, I can't, I can't do coastal stuff, obviously, in central New York, but I would also be extremely worried about that population of animals. Interesting. Um, do you have any plans to, I guess, add any other animals to your lab? <laughs> Or, or would it be just more along these lines? Do you, do you plan to stay with dogs and birds? Do you have any other, uh, I guess, choices down the road here? If you could choose anything, um, uh, how would I answer that? I, I, I guess I have. I am an animal lover, and my career has allowed me to work on many, many animals, and I'm very fortunate to have been able to do that. Um, I, I would probably say that I'm really excited with the results and the work that we've been doing on dogs. And so likely in the near future, we'll stick with dogs. Um, but that doesn't mean that I won't find the next shiny animal. Uh, cats are not in your future? No, cats are weird. Cats, oh, cats, no! Cats. <laughs> I feel for full disclosure purposes, I am a cat guy, but... Uh, <laughs> I own two cats. I love cats, but physiologically, like they were adapted to the desert. They're not supposed to be house animals. And so everything about their physiology is weird, oh, <laughs> but, I, but I love them. I love them as pets. And uh, we're at question 13. Oh, yay. Uh, I understand your lab is going to be co-hosting a virtual canine science symposium in 2021. That's right. Tell us about it. What is this? Yeah. So excited. Um, okay. And so this is part of my annual, um, of our annual meeting, the Society of Integrative and Comparative Biology. And so this is one of their symposia this year. It's going to be happening on January 7th, 2021. It is now virtual. So anyone who registers for the conference can not only listen to our day-long symposium, but can also attend their complimentary session. And so there's going to be um, every branch of biology represented within our canine science symposium. We're going to learn about genetics of dogs, about ecology of dogs, about behavior of dogs, about human-dog relationships, about the biomechanics of dogs. We're going to be learning about um, dogs as conservationists. There's, there's some really impressive work happening on that front. Um, and then I'm also going to be talking about some dog aging and we're going to be listening to some exercise physiology um, about dogs. And so I'm, I'm very excited that um, it's a group of 11 um, scientists who are just absolutely wonderful humans. And I'm very excited to be working with them. Um, and and we, we are trying to push the canine science um, into the light um, since it's such a new field.
Is this open to the public or is it just why? Sorry, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say, or is it like invite only? Can can anyone go and listen to these uh, you know, these lectures? Yep. And so it is um if you register for the meeting, so it's Society for Integrative and Comparative Biology. Um, if you go to the registration link, um, and I think that there's different, like you can pay for a day. So if you pay for just January 7th. Um, you can attend. So anyone, anyone who's interested in learning about dogs can attend it. Oh, very neat. We will include that link in the show notes. So if anyone's interested in checking out, they can they can go there and, and find it. Great. That's exciting. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, well, that was 13. Uh, thank you so much, Professor Jimenez. Uh, it was really great chatting with you today. And this, uh, once again, another remote recording here. Um, I want to uh, thank our listeners again for bearing with us uh, as we do record remotely. And I really do appreciate uh, your emails. Um, if you have any questions or if there's anything you'd like the podcast to cover, you can email 13 at colgate.edu. That's 13, the number. Um, and I also want to take a moment to, um, you know, send our best wishes to everyone in the Colgate extended family, uh, and everyone currently on campus right now, be well, and until the next time, keep asking questions. Thirteen is a production of the Colgate University Office of Communications. Audio engineering by Brian Ness. Logo art by Catrail Pritz. Executive producer, Laura Jack. And I'm your host and producer, Dan DeVries. Visit ColgateMagazine.com and ColgateResearchMagazine.com for more in-depth faculty research stories.